Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Aisha Geisinger, Associate Professor of Religion at Carleton College, about her fabulous book, Gender and the Construction of Exegetical Authority, published by Brill in 2015. Aisha Geisinger's monograph, Gender and the Construction of Exegetical Authority, contributes to the growing field of intersections between gender studies and Quranic studies. Unlike some recent studies that have explored the role of gender in the Quran itself or in applications of the Quran, Professor Geisinger takes a step back to explore how exegetes broadly conceived have historically understood the relevance and importance of gendered sources in terms of their authority to make sense of the Quran. What does it mean, for example, when a particular Qur'an commentary mentions a hadith with women in the asnad, while other commentaries do not? Are these rhetorical moves intentional? Were they significant in their time? In order to address these questions and others, Professor Geisinger looks at traditional works of exegesis, sections on exegesis and hadith compilations, as well as literature on the virtues of the Qur'an, among other topics, all the while engaging with a rich breadth of modern and pre-modern scholarship, ranging from Bukhari to Judith Butler. The footnotes are extensive, the prose is clear, and the book is well-organized. The monograph will likely appeal to a number of disciplines, especially Islamic history, Quranic studies, and gender studies. Without further ado, here's my interview with Professor Geisinger. Good morning, Aisha. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this incredibly rich and timely book that you've written. But as our tradition is here in New Books in Islamic Studies, could you first tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the topics of the book, including Quranic studies, Islamic studies, and gender studies, and how the the topic uh, came into your life? Well... When I was going to begin my PhD, I already had an MA in Islamic Studies, but I didn't think that I wanted to continue with that. So I did a qualifying year with several courses in early Christian studies, and that was what interested me much more, in fact. There seemed to be a lot more scope in that field for pursuing the kind of research that I found interesting. But when it was time to select courses, for some reason, my department told me that I needed to sign up for a course that was being offered that year on Hadith. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was under-enrolled. I didn't want to take it. It was at an inconvenient time, but um, and I also thought it was going to, probably not going to be very interesting. I mean, what were we going to talk about? Uh, spend the entire semester talking about the debates of whether or not Hadith go back to Muhammad or not. But anyway, I didn't really have much choice. I took it, and um, it turned out to be an extremely worthwhile course that changed um, the course of my study plans, actually. So among other 
things I learned about reading hadiths as literary texts. And so for me, that opened up a whole new world, and I decided that I absolutely wanted to continue doing Islamic studies. So we'll get back more into this later, but the idea of reading hadith as literary texts, and as you discuss in your monograph, particularly even the asnads, the, you know, the chain of I heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, I think this might strike a lot of people as an odd claim, although you explain it very well. So could you say a little bit about how hadiths or isnads could be understood as a, as a literary text? Well, I mean, one reason why this course was so uh, game-changing for me was that I had always encountered hadiths as either used as proof texts, usually in discussions of Islamic law or theology, or sometimes as inspirational texts which are supposed to foster certain pious emotions, you know, gratitude to God, fear of the upcoming apocalypse, and so on. And their meaning was usually, in my experience, treated either as very apparent, especially by people who've been influenced by Salafi perspectives, or for neo-traditionalists as, you know, something that was interpreted authoritatively centuries ago, so by, you know, people like Ibn Hajar and his commentary on al-Bukhari. So, you know, in, e- in either case, they're closed texts. They say they mean what they mean, and there's really nothing that you can say. And so it's it's a discussion and debate stopper. Uh, in my experience, learning to read them as literary texts then, for me, opened them up in all kinds of interesting ways. So instead of them being texts which uh, can be employed to, to stop discussion and debate, they, they open them up, in fact. And so if I could uh, push a little bit further and connect this to one of the things you mentioned in your acknowledgments section... Uh, you mentioned there's there's some particular mentors and scholars who influenced this project and your scholarship more generally. Could you say anything about some formative encounters uh, you might have had with some of these scholars or mentors? Well, the teacher of that fateful course, who then became my advisor, was Sebastian Gunther. He was at University of Toronto at that time. Now he's in Göttingen in Germany. So his work on... Uh, literary readings of hadith was uh, was very important to me. Walid Saleh's work on uh, tafsir, especially as a genealogical genre, and he ended up on my committee, was also uh, absolutely central to the work that I ended up doing, especially on the book. Mm-hmm. Well, great. And, and you get a chance to get into some of that scholarship in the text as well, which we can talk about as the interview unfolds. So uh, in terms of thinking about the book project in particular, I'd like to, to start things off with w- one of your opening questions. And so if I can quote from your book, you ask, is it possible to chart a history of the pre-modern genre of Quran commentary without considering gender? Or if one were to attempt to do so, would anything fundamental be omitted? So, obviously, you write a whole book about this, um, and we have the next hour or so to talk about it, but could you say a little bit about your own preliminary answer to that, as well as how some of your interlocutors, who may or may not agree with you, might respond to that question? Well, when I was writing my dissertation, and people would ask me what my topic was on, and I would tell them, the most common response I would get would be extreme puzzlement, 
Uh, and the question, you know, is there even the material to write an entire dissertation on that? And this would be, you know, often from people who are quite familiar with Tafsir texts. So it wasn't that they had never encountered them before. So, yeah, that that was a common uh, view. But, I mean, among my findings is that uh, if you want to understand how interpretive authority works in uh, pre-modern tafsir texts, and here I mean primarily Sunni tafsir texts, that was the focus of my book, simply due to the problems of trying to you know, have a wider focus. So I did not look at, say, Sufi tafsir texts. I uh, used Twelver Shi exegetical works for comparative purposes, but that was not my focus. The only Ibadli tafsir I used was Hud, and again, for comparative purposes. So, I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying here is primarily um, talking about Sunni tafsir works and how this might relate to others is uh, unclear at present. But if you want to understand how interpretive authority works in the text that I was using, then gender is uh, an absolutely central component in understanding that. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you demonstrate in the text, the, the classical scholars are constantly thinking about gender, but not necessarily in ways that we might think about in the modern world, which relates to one thing that you point out is that oftentimes when modern people are thinking about gender, they equate this with, like, womanness, which, you know, is obviously a very uh, contextualized, uh, maybe even odd way to conceptualize things. But nonetheless, you, you, talk, you look at Judith Butler and other people that think through ideas of gender. So could you say something about how people in the pre-modern world and these scholars and societies that you're surveying, how did they understood, understand this, this 21st English term gender that uh, is used in your title and throughout the book? Well, when I was researching it, I initially did read the text through the lens of commonsensical ideas about gender that you know we find in late 20th century North America. Well, that was when I was researching and writing. It was still the 20th century. So, you know, gender is a binary where you have males and females. Those are the only two possible categories. There are two opposite sexes, which are always naturally, quote unquote, attracted to one another. I mean, that was ubiquitous in almost anything that I had ever read or heard about Islam. And I mean, in the culture that I was raised in, along with the notion of gender complementarity that well, men and women are spiritually and, for many authors, intellectually equal. They have different social roles due to their innate differences and so on. So that was what I started out assuming that the text would say. And, but this quickly fell apart for me when I actually began to read the texts. And, I mean, you asked uh, what texts and persons were more most fundamental in my scholarly formation. I mean... Really, the aside from those mentioned and others which I have not yet mentioned, the experience of spending hours reading primary source texts, mm-hmm. particularly Tafsir texts, was uh, absolutely foundational. It was an experience like none other, and uh, it certainly did bring me you know, up short very quickly in terms of the inadequacy of the ideas about gender that I was bringing to the text. So, I mean, I was immediately confronted with questions like, well, you know, uh, what on earth is a muhannath? 
how do eunuchs fit into this? Uh, why is it that according to the exegetes, only free women have to cover their heads and bodies completely and slave women don't? You know, aren't female slaves women? And where was the gender complementarity? So um, I realized that I had to ask uh, how it was that pre-modern exegetes understand gender. What are, what are their underlying assumptions? And are these the same as the ones that I'm assuming ought to be there? And I mean, the short answer to that is no, definitely not. Um, so the works of Afsana Najmabadi uh, were very important in in my thinking about this. So she wrote an article, Beyond the Americas, Are Gender and Sexuality Useful Categories of Historical Analysis? Her book also, uh, Women with Mustaches and Men Without Beards. Um, Drorzeevi's work on uh, Ottoman history also covers some of the same kind of ground. So these authors look at how gender is a construct that's historically situated. They talk about, um, especially Zevi, uh, ancient Greek theories of gender, which uh, Muslims end up encountering when they translate uh, Greek words, uh, uh, works on medicine and science into Arabic. So Galen's theories, for example. Um, Galen saw gender as, um, you know, a hierarchical structure where you have uh, free men who are at the top, and, you know, everyone else is is basically a not-man, who are ranged at various uh, stages below. So, in other words, he's not working with a binary, he's he's working with, uh, you know, a situation in which the assumption is that um, male is the norm, and it's really the only kind of human body, and any other type of body is uh, simply a departure to various degrees from that norm. It's not uh, its own separate thing in the sense that we understand or conceive of gender binaries. Um, So this has all kinds of implications for uh, how one's going to read these texts. Mm -hmm. And I think it's... It's helpful the way you demonstrate that although pre-modern ideas of gender uh, in general are clearly not identical to contemporary ideas, there nonetheless existed a spectrum, and the simple binary, at least in practice, um, couldn't often be helpful. And so another thing, after you begin things with this big question that you go on to answer over the next uh, several hundred pages... You start off with a tradition, something called the gecko tradition. And mm. I think to a listener or a reader who's unfamiliar with the contents of this, this will just sound quite odd and strange, but perhaps it's a literary trope that works well because it catches the reader's attention. So could you, could you tell us about this gecko tradition and why you wanted to capture your reader's interest uh, at the very beginning with this text? Well... I mean, I'm um, on one hand, this is a, a tradition which you find in a number of different uh, exegetical works, according to which, uh, and Aisha usually is the person who's supposed to have transmitted it, though some other versions have uh, Umshari, another female companion. Uh, so according to that, um, you know, um, Muhammad told her that when Abraham was thrown into the fire in the famous story that's in the Quran where, you know, Abraham uh, 
refuses to uh, worship the idols of his people, so they throw him into the fire. But the fire doesn't uh, burn him because he's divinely protected. So according to the story, then, Abraham is thrown into the fire, and all of the animals who witness this try to put out the fire except for the gecko. And it blows on the fire, so uh, therefore... um, now, the messenger of God, so Muhammad, orders that geckos should be killed. So, I mean, from the perspective of a modern reader, that might seem to be a very strange kind of um, story. In a famous article by Norman Calder, where, uh, where he's talking about um, the tafsir genre and how it works, he quotes this particular Tradition, in fact, uh, it appears in Ibn Kathir's uh, Stories of the Prophets work, uh, as an example of you know material that really is is rather trivial, uh, but that uh, ends up being foregrounded by a very marginal current of Quranic interpretation because it comes in the form of a hadith. So traditions like this do raise interpretive questions, and that was what I was uh, trying to discuss there. I mean, uh, that's a particularly ostensibly trivial hadith, especially from our perspective, where it raises all kinds of ethical questions, too, and environmental questions. But so many hadith which are attributed to women that find their way into tafsir texts, um, you know, one could look at them and say, well, you know, in comparison to all the masses of material that tafsir texts contain. Why would you focus on these few hadith which have female transmitters? I mean, aren't you distorting the study of tafsir if you do that? You're just focusing on this relatively uh, minor thing. So, I mean, that is a very important question of method. How do you focus on an aspect of the tafsir tradition without turning it into a search for something that might be of interest to contemporary people for our own reasons, but really, you know, historically wasn't of great interest to the exegetes. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I was trying to examine there is how you do that, and I lay out uh, a number of methodological uh, propositions for how that can be done, and I think that's a a central um, contribution of the book, actually these issues of method. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things, obviously, by recounting this gecko tradition is you get into the idea of Aisha, the wife of the prophet, and what role she played in, you know, the, the later formation of tradition as a hadith transmitter. Now, on that note, one thing you point out that struck me as particularly interesting is you look at the the book of tafsir sections of various hadith collections. And you note that their their citation of female authorities has a somewhat unprecedented um, manifestation. Could you, could you say something about that and why these books of hadith uh, began this ostensibly novel tradition of uh, incorporating uh, female females as part of the, the chains in like a widespread manner? Well, in the book I argue that it's not so much a novel thing. I mean, when uh, when Hadith collectors such as Bukhari and the Termidhi and so on are doing this, 
I would argue that they're actually responding to something that's going on already. I mean, these traditions are already being used exegetically. Uh, sometimes female transmitters are being quoted as their putative um, you know, origins, sometimes not. But uh, these Hadith collectors were concerned with uh, what they regarded as sound isnads in accordance with uh, you know, their, their ideas of... Uh, how one uh, grades hadith according to their soundness or not. Uh, so they're taking hadith which are already in circulation, but they are very concerned about, uh, you know, especially in the case of Bukhari, he wants uh, all of the isnads to be sound. So um, the result of that, and that's not intentional, it was uh, a byproduct really of the method, was that uh, more traditions which are attributed to women you know, become foregrounded. So in his Tafsir chapter, for instance, then that's about 12% of the uh, traditions which are attributed to female figures, mostly to Aisha bint Abi Bakr. So could you say a little bit more about Aisha bint Abi Bakr? This is a name, obviously, that comes up a lot in terms of Hadith transmitters, famous Muslims, famous wives of the Prophet in particular. So why is she a central figure in your study? Uh, because there are so many hadith which are ascribed to her that end up uh, being quoted by Sunni exegetes. Though not only by Sunni exegetes. I mean, one thing that very much interested me and that I hope to do further research on it you know, later, is uh, how they're taken up by a couple of Twelver uh, Shia exegetes. So in a Tusi as well as a Tabrisi's uh, Tafsir works, then you have Hadith which are um, you know, attributed to her being quoted. Now, I mean, there they're echoing what Sunni exegetes are doing, but still, anyway, it's complicated and I want to look at it further some other time. Um, but it's partly because of the volume of hadith, including those which are deemed exegetical, which are traced back to her. So they find their, their way into um, the uh, tafsir works as more hadith are being uh, incorporated. And so what, what was it about her, as opposed to other companions or wives, that made her stand out so many years later? This is a complicated historical question that a number of people have tried to deal with, not so much, not in terms of uh, tafsir, but in terms of why so many hadith have been um, ascribed to her. Um, it's hard to say. Probably a combination of factors had something to do with it. So she was about 18 when Muhammad died, apparently. Um, and she lived um, you know, for several decades after um, she was very well connected, being the daughter of Abu Bakr, um, and uh, you know, according to what is presented to us in uh, certain hadith collections, anyway, she seems to have had, um, you know, a uh, a lively correspondence with certain uh, leading male figures of the day, and uh, to have. Uh, been active also in terms of uh, people consulting her and to a much lesser extent Um Salama 
um, on questions of Muhammad's practice and so on. Um, so, I mean, there are a number of social and uh, political factors that are linked to uh, why she might have been memorialized in that way. In terms of uh, whether or not the hadith actually go back to her, did she see herself as, quote-unquote, doing tafsir? I, I mean, I do not get into the question of whether or not they can be traced back to her in my book. I actually don't really think it's relevant um, because, first of all, even if you can show that something goes back to the 7th century and is contemporaneous with that person, um, that's certainly no guarantee that they actually said it or that their words weren't taken out of context. I mean, we can see that nowadays in real time with uh, the disaster that is the Internet. Um, so there's that. Um and then there's also the question of what happens when somebody's words are quoted and used exegetically. So I get into that especially in chapter three of my book, where you know you have exegetes who are quoting words sometimes of pre-Islamic poets, male, as, uh, male much more so than female, um, exegetically. So in that case, is is, exe- is exegesis happening? Could one possibly imagine that a pre-Islamic poet thought that he or she was interpreting the Quran? Obviously not. Um, so to what extent is that uh, relevant to our understanding of what hadith are, are doing? I mean, for the exegetes, they're functioning exegetically, evidently. Um, for the original speaker, no, they couldn't have foreseen that, that this was what their words were going to be doing. Mm-hmm. So there's there's definitely a historical gap between, on one hand, uh, you know, 7th century figures, again, male as well as female. So, I mean, people like Ibn Abbas, who are quoted all over um, Tafsir works, um, probably would be very surprised and perhaps uh, very unhappy with uh, some or many of the interpretations that are credited to them. Mm-hmm. So there's a gap between historical people and what ends up being represented in um, you know, tafsir works but uh, I mean ultimately the more interesting question to my mind is regardless of, of the historical veracity of uh, what's being said uh, what happens to these texts they take on a life of their own because they're being quoted and uh, requoted and reworked and so on so what do they end up meaning for the genre? And what does it mean that you have these traditions which are ascribed to Aisha or much less commonly to other female figures from early Islam and being repeated and repeated? Right. And, and I think your discussion of the, you know, a sensibly ir- irrelevant question of like if these traditions go back historically is, is well taken, you know, in part just because of like the title of your book, you're looking at constructions of exegetical authority. And part of this, uh, something else that struck me is you, you observe that uh, more female successors than companions are mentioned um, regarding tefsir, whereas the inverse is true for males. So uh, could you, the other way around. Okay, please correct me. Sorry, it's uh, 
many more male successors than male companions are presented as sources of materials which are relevant to tafsir, whereas in the case of uh, females, it's the reverse. So many more female companions than female successors. So if you picture it like a funnel, right? In the case of male figures, the point of the funnel is down. The wide end is up. So as time goes on, you know, many, many more men of every generation are quoted as possible sources of um, exegesis. Whereas in the case of uh, female figures, the funnel is the other way. The, the wide end is down. So it's the companions who uh, are the most commonly quoted. Uh, far fewer female successors after the successor generation um, in the sources that I used, it's very rare. And when they appear, they're u- it's usually actually hard to tell whether these are real people or, um, you know, whether these are, are even intended to be understood as real people or whether these are, uh, you know, pious stock figures from stories. Mm-hmm. And so also related to this uh, question of historical period, you you choose to focus on on just mostly just a few hundred years in the early and early classical period. What what made you want to pick that time period as opposed to something later or even something uh, more broad? Well, first of all, that was where I started out from. I mean, in that fateful hadith course, I started. Uh, that was when I encountered the uh, you know Bukhari's chapter on tafsir in his uh, hadith work. And uh, noticed that there were so many hadith which were attributed to women, well, mostly to Aisha. And went looking in the secondary literature for any clue as to, you know, what this means and uh, whether it's implications for tafsir and found, you know, very little and really nothing that analyzed it. So hence the project. So on one hand, yes, that was where I started in the formative period. And wanting to understand what Bukhari was doing, then I was looking at other sources which are conventionally dated to the formative period to see if, you know, what he was doing was unusual and if so, in what ways and so on. So there was that. Uh, So that was my starting point. At the same time, it's uh, because of the uh, funnel shape of, um, you know, quoted authorities that Mm -hmm. we were just talking about. Right, you have primarily female companions who are quoted, so uh, it made sense to focus on earlier work because um, this was closer to the ostensible historical period that these figures are coming from. But I mean, I I intended this work to be um, in part a way of uh, establishing the ground for later study of um, medieval and later medieval tafsir works. So Mm -hmm. I have to, as far as I could see, look at the earlier period first for historical reasons, but uh, I mean, that's just the beginning, really. Mm -hmm. And I think the the funnel visual is helpful for thinking about who... Who are, who are the women initially that were included in these traditions? And then how, as you, you look at different tafsir works, you see which, which traditions continue and which, which exegetes are citing other exegetes who happen to be citing women. And so I think obviously there's a certain logic to, 
to start an early in that regard as well. Who who's your audience for this book if you wanted to whittle it down to like a particular subfield? Well, Tufsir studies definitely. But I mean, audiences. I didn't intend it to be like exclusive. It is situated across a confluence of disciplines. So uh, I mean, it's uh, it's about tafsir, but it focuses primarily on uh, hadith among all the various types of exegetical materials which are attributed to women. Um, so people who are interested in hadith and uh, reads these texts through the lens of gender. So. Um, people who are interested in gender. So it does uh, have a possible resonance to a number of uh, people with different types of interests. So you've you've mentioned some of the, you know, surprises that you encountered in the sense of just things that you didn't expect. Could you say what were some of the biggest challenges you faced either in terms of structuring the project or intellectually challenging questions on their own right that you encountered uh, during your research and writing? Well, because there's so little secondary literature that deals directly with the issues that I was attempting to uh, look at, then uh, it was challenging simply deciding what to do. I mean, it's like being in a field of freshly fallen snow and, you know, there's no no path has been uh, made already by anyone. So where do you go? How are you going to cross it? Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, it was, uh, it was difficult to decide what would be the best way to approach the question, how to deal with, uh, it methodologically and how to cut it down to size so that uh, it wouldn't turn into the never-ending research project of doom. Mm-hmm. So what what kinds of projects do you hope um, others take up uh, in, in light of your research? Well, I mean, I'm very glad to see that there is um, a lot of interest and a growing amount of scholarship on uh, questions related to women in the Quran, uh, women and tafsir. So I hope that there will be a lot more research dealing with uh, various aspects of both of these questions. I mean, we know really very, very little about the history of the interpretation of the Quran. The Tafsir works that we have available to us in print are only a very small proportion of what once existed. It's unclear the extent to which what we have is representative of uh, you know general interpretive trends that once were out there. And it's an, even what we have is an absolutely immense literature. So uh, there's plenty of scope for all different types of uh, of research into it, and I hope that it proceeds. Mm-hmm. And can I say also that the, the scrutiny with which you document your sources uh, is very user-friendly, um, perhaps daunting to the uninitiated, but nonetheless extraordinarily helpful, and I think it will clearly lay the ground for, for people to continue um, thanks in large part to your extensive citations. So 
And you, you mentioned a little bit about the challenges you faced writing it and thinking about it. What, what do you think for scholars, so people that pick up the, this book with, with interest as professionals, academics, what do you think the biggest challenges that readers will encounter going through the book? I would like to think that I've written it in such a way as to minimize these challenges, but... Um, and I, I, I mean, I can clarify, too, I don't mean it in a, in a logistical sense, like, you know, the, the prose is complicated or something like that, but, like, intellectually, or trying to distinguish, you know, between two fields, what kinds of questions are historical, what kinds of questions are theological, not that example particularly, but what, yeah, in, in your mind, what... What do you think? What are the intellectual challenges you think this book uh, presents most to readers? Well, for people, it, it really does. Uh, the assumption is that people already have a fair amount of familiarity with uh, the Hadith literature, that they know a fair amount about um, Muslim history, especially early Muslim history, and that they uh, know something about tafsir and how it works. So um, that that is actually rather a lot to ask of readers. Come to think of it, so it it can present uh, issues simply of uh, you know of having certain types of of historical and textual background. It also, uh, I mean, it is a departure from many of the types of uh, things that I had to read, say, when I was doing my comprehensives. So for for people who are accustomed to uh, reading much of the older scholarship, especially, this might be such a departure that uh, they're struggling to, to try to contextualize it and relate it to uh, other things that they have read already. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is, I think, also clear for, from someone who surveys uh, Islamic studies scholarship from the past several decades, is that an explicit focus on gender isn't something that, you know, like, permeates a lot of work. So even if someone is familiar with early Islamic history and tafsir, um, for example, you know, they, Judith Butler's ideas on gender, for example, might, might seem completely foreign to them. And so... When you use the term gender in the title, and you discuss it throughout the book, returning to a topic we touched on earlier, could you say, what are some of the other main categories that um, affect someone's exegetical authority? And so you've talked about, you know, where they fit in the spectrum of gender, whether they're free or a slave. What, what are the other considerations that would have affected the legitimacy of uh, someone's exegetical traditions. I just wanted to say something about the question of uh, using gender as a central category in the study of uh, pre-modern Islam. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yes, it's not. Uh, it hasn't exactly been a central theme of the discipline up until now, but that is beginning to change. So, right. in a very recent book. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered it, by Nadia Maria Al-Sheikh, Women, Islam, and Abbasid Identity. Uh, she does that. Right? She, uh, she looks at various representations of female figures in Abbasid texts, and she uh, 
asks, you know, what's gender doing in this representation and how is it being used and how does it relate to wider themes of the text? So that type of scholarship is starting to happen. And I think that now that um, the dam has burst, so to speak, that there'll be a lot of other scholarship that's going to quickly follow. So one hopes in 10 years' time it's uh, it's going to be a, a different situation with regard to that. And, and I, I can note as well, and this can be a, a plug for our listeners as well, the New Books, New Books in Islamic Studies has interviewed a number of scholars, including you and Marion Katz and Aisha Chowdhury and Karen Bauer and others who have been working on these kinds of topics. And so, so yeah, so if we can go back to this, this category of gender, but also other factors such as you know whether or not someone is free or a slave could you say a little bit about these categories that would have affected the legitimacy of someone as a transmitter i mean it depends on the time in which you're talking uh potentially any companion of the prophet regardless of you know are they male or female are they free or slave could transmit hadith and their hadith are available in the various um you know, compilations of uh, hadith, mostly from the, uh, which were compiled mostly in the 3rd slash 9th centuries by and large, some earlier, some later. But, I mean, the, in proportion, I mean, the vast majority of uh, hadith are from uh, free. Um, in terms of what ends up being taken up by uh, exegetes, I mean, um, I do look at some aspects of this in my book. Uh, again, it really depends on the uh, the exegete, um, you know, why, when they're writing. Um, what are their overarching methodologies that they are uh, using for interpreting the Quran? What is the state of Hadith scholarship at the time? So, as I discuss in Chapter 6, I believe... Uh, once the Hadith collections have been carried out and um, they're well known, then it no longer is seen as necessary by uh, many exegetes to include the entire Isnad of the Hadith. Well, in fact, that happens uh, earlier on for a number of uh, exegetes. So in the case of Al-Maturidi, he does not include Isnads and so on. I mean, they are cumbersome. So uh, that is one factor which um, will determine or plays a role in determining whether or not uh, women are being included as authorities, whether Isnads are are being cited, whether they're being truncated, whether uh, the Hadith itself is not being cited but it's only being alluded to. Ideas of what is or isn't a reliable Hadith. So, you know, this takes us back to the question of uh, Hadith's studies and how uh, Hadith scholars determine this, uh, and whether or not a given exegete, uh, what type of Hadith he wanted to use. So, I mean, sometimes they're quite happy to quote Hadith which they regarded as uh, weak or even perhaps spurious, like the uh, merit of Surah traditions that um, some of them are happy to quote, for instance. So there are a whole host of factors that go into the decisions of particular exegetes around who they are or aren't going to quote. And um, so that's one reason why reading uh, tafsir works often presents you with things that you weren't expecting to see, necessarily. 
because it's often difficult to predict how they're going to make these determinations. So, I mean, sometimes you can look at a tafsir which, uh, you know, you can place several uh, different tafsir works side by side and look up particular verses and see that, oh, they're, they're all quoting this uh, particular variant reading from Aisha. On the other hand, perhaps not. And so sometimes it's difficult to see why it is that they're uh, making certain interpretive choices and why they're not, but it's uh, it's definitely a complicated undertaking. Well, so so on the note of complicated undertakings and related to how we began things, uh, have you had a chance to use the book or excerpts from the book with your students? Uh, no, not yet. Uh-huh. So... Since since you you work at a, an academic institution, I'm, I'm guessing you've you've thought about the book pedagogically uh, to some extent. Would you have any any advice or, or guidance for educators that would be interested in using the text in a classroom setting? Are there like certain chapters you hope they would use in conversation with other scholarship, that kind of thing? That would depend on what they want to do with it. So if they want to talk about method in terms of uh, studying particular parts of Hadith texts, then the introduction might be a good reading, actually. If they want to talk about uh, constructions of women in, uh, you know, as putative sources of exegetical materials, then chapters three and four especially chapter three, because it gets into the whole issue of volition or not, and to what extent we can read uh, any type of volition into the exegetical materials which are used. I mean, that relates not only to um, female figures as putative sources of exegetical materials, but also to men. So that could give rise to all kinds of interesting classroom conversations. For anyone wanting to talk about the the interface between theories of interpretive authority and then how they end up being, you know, translating into uh, actual lived practice. So, do theories which apparently uh, prioritize masculinity as uh, something which is uh, preeminently authoritative? Does that mean that necessarily in the real world all women are unable to engage in um, the interpretation of a text? I deal with that in Chapter 6, well, also in Chapter 1. That's the, the theory end of it. So there are a number of different ways that it could be used. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's helpful, too, and I think one of the qualities of Braille publications in general is the very meticulous uh, organization of the chapters and the table of contents, and I think it could make it very user-friendly in that regard to identify even particular passages that could be helpful in a teaching context. So before we conclude things up, I think there's there's one question if someone picks up the book, or maybe for our listeners, um, might might be present upon first glance, but you you addressed early on that it's not the focus of your of your text. But this question of where where are all the the, Mus- the female exegetes throughout Islamic history? So obviously, uh, in terms of like classical exegesis, your book is not about 
focusing on female exegetes. Could you say a little bit about why that was not an interest or why that would be an unproductive, or not unproductive, but yeah, why, why is that something you chose not to particularly tackle in your project? Well, to my knowledge, there are no female exegetes uh, per se until the 20th century. So, uh, exegetes in the sense of those who write tafsir works. Right. Now, the whole question of whether or not there could be out there somewhere, I do deal with uh, a bit in Chapter 6. It is, to my mind, conceivable that perhaps somebody someday will unearth a hadith-based uh, interpretation of perhaps some verses of the Quran authored by a medieval woman or perhaps the place to look would be uh, in uh, Sufi literature. I mean, there were some uh, late medieval Sufi female scholars who wrote, so Aisha al-Bauni is who I'm thinking of at the moment, who was familiar with Sufi tafsir anyway. I mean, she does reference it in some of her works. I mean, it's possible that it's out there, but it was not something that was memorialized as central in any way, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. So, finally, uh, our, one of our traditions, New Books and Islamic Studies, as well, is to conclude things by having our authors share a little bit about future and current projects. So, related to the book project or not, what are, what are some things that you're currently working on or see yourself pursuing in the next 10 years or so? Lots of things. Well, I mean, the book has uh, suggested some avenues of further research. So, but what is it that happens with, you know, exegetical materials which are attributed to women in later medieval works? I mean, I talk about that to some extent, but it's only really a preliminary examination. Uh, what about the interface between? Hadith commentaries. So, I mean, earlier we were mentioning that um, certain Hadith works, so uh, Bukhari, Tirmidhi, An-Nasai, Al-Hakim, these have chapters on tafsir. So, um, I mean, a number of uh, Hadith commentaries also then necessarily, well, not necessarily necessarily, but I mean, they do end up with these chapters on tafsir. As part of them. And in some cases, so Ibn Hajar's uh, Fath al-Bari, for instance, he is uh, he's quoting, among other things, certain exegetical works. So there's an interplay between um, hadith and tafsir in these late medieval texts, in fact, which uh, nobody has really researched. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There are quite a few things. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to keeping my, my eyes tuned. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Aisha, and thank you so much for letting, letting us interview you about your fantastic book. Well, thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. That was my conversation with Aisha Geisinger, Associate Professor of Religion at Carleton College, about her fabulous book, Gender and the Construction of Exegetical Authority published by Braille in 2015. Thank you for listening.